Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Heard the call to build your small business? Make it happen with a .NET domain name, the place for dreamers for 30 years and counting. Visit keepdreamingup.net for tips and advice. Whether you're just getting started or looking to grow, that's keepdreamingup.net. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the latest polls driving the news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. This week we are joined by Patrick Ruffini. He is a co-founder and partner at Echelon Insights, uh, my polling uh, firm. And he is also now the co-host of Political Pod podcast. Uh, it's called Floor Fight. Is that right, Patrick? That's right. It's called so, Floor Fight. All right. Um, and uh, we are taking on uh, the uh, big boys and girls in podcasting, uh, <laughs> challenging the pollsters for support. Uh oh. Well, well. Welcome. We we welcome the challenge. Uh, welcome the healthy competition. No, we. I'm I'm so excited to have you on the show, Patrick. Uh, so for our, our listeners, Patrick and I work together at Echelon Insights, um, and I've known Patrick for a long, long, long time. And uh, Patrick has been my the the chief person educating me on this whole crazy Republican convention delegate process. And so this week, we wanted to introduce Patrick and uh, his show to our listeners, uh, because we on on this show talk occasionally about the delegate math and all of the craziness there, but we don't get nearly into the level of technical detail um, that you all get into. So I just first want to ask you to tell us a little bit about um, what the heck is going on. You know, when people say, well, Republicans, are, are they going to have a contested convention? Which is something, by the way, Kristen was predicting almost a year ago. I want to find the episodes where I – like, I, we need to get, like, some transcription service to transcribe our shows and, like, find the episode where I said it because I know I'll, I did. I'll, I'll put our production <laughs> and team on And I've been wrong it. about so many other things that I'm like, <laughs> no, I was right about something. <laughs> I think you said it on one of our joint appearances too. So there's also some television but I, I, I underestimated Trump, but I knew that Cruz was – just gunning for a floor fight. So, Patrick, when people say, are Republicans going to have a contested convention? Explain to our listeners what a contested convention even means. Well, we haven't had one in so long. I mean, I think the last one we had was 1948. Um, so in the modern era, it's it's virtually unprecedented. Well, people or people say, wait a minute. Well, you know, people say, well, didn't Ted Kennedy try to contest? And wasn't there a, yeah. a, a convention? You know, Ford and Reagan. Ford and Reagan. And yeah, I think that's actually true. That's technically true that the Ford and Reagan convention was uh, theoretically no one had a majority going into the convention, but you had – only two candidates, one of whom was the incumbent president who was ahead, um, who had all sorts of favors to give out to delegates. Um, so, uh, But we've never had one quite like this before. But there really has technically not been a contested convention. I think since 1976, I think, is the last official one. So what's going to make this 
exciting, right? So tell us a little bit about, you know, how is this going to work in practice, right? Contested doesn't just mean you're going to have multiple ballots. I mean, there's also going to be it's, – it's not going to be that civilized, right? I mean, there's going to be a huge amount of infighting. There's going to be a huge amount of press. I mean, tell us a little bit about how this might turn out and might look like in practice. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean multiple ballots. It could mean one ballot and one ballot in which the winner is not known ahead of time, but somebody does eventually get over uh, the 1237 mark. Um, you have right now um, what is unfolding um, for, uh, you know, what is unfolding uh, right now is, is, is a fight at each of the state conventions for who is actually going to sit uh, in the delegate seats in Cleveland. Um, this is really important because it's very, could be very different than who actually won the primary in that state and who is bound um, to a candidate. Um, so we just had a, a process in both Colorado and Wyoming, which in which those delegates are actually elected at the convention and bound at the convention. So um, that is the election. Um, and that's something Donald Trump has been raising as sort of an issue. Why is there just a convention to elect these delegates? But those are the rules. And those are places where Ted Cruz has been um, the overwhelming dominant um, uh, winner of those types of contests. But you also have contests at individual congressional districts and in states throughout the country where they are picking people who are usually party regulars or usually elected by the uh, people who typically go to these conventions, who are people supporting Ted Cruz, who may be bound to Trump on the first ballot or through the second ballot, um, but after that are free to whomever to vote for whomever they want, and usually that is going to be uh, Ted Cruz. Um, so I, the way I frame this, um, the way I've, I've kind of framed this um, issue, I think, is one where it, on one level, it's getting harder for Trump to cross the 1237 magic number, the majority. Um, and on the other hand, it's getting easier <laughs> for him. And why do I, why do I say that? Um, on the actual delegate count, you know, in terms of he may end up somewhere, I think he will end up somewhere around 1,200 or so. Um, so it, previously, I think people would have said that, um, you know, if he's that close, the party is not going to feel like they don't really want to fight to, you know, you, they don't want to fight this hard to stop him. Um, if he's really that close, if he's that close to a majority. But if you actually look at the delegates actually elected at the state level, um, you could very easily see how he could come to 1220. He could come very, very close um, and based on the makeup of the type of delegates that are that are being elected right now into these unbound delegate positions or the ones we thought would be unbound that are overwhelmingly Cruz supporters, that he may not make it over the top. And if he doesn't make it over the top in the first ballot, then you have a whole bunch of delegations on the second ballot that then can vote for whomever they want. And they're pretty much for the most part, um, stocked with Ted Cruz supporters. Well, this being a show about polling, something that we reference on this show occasionally, but I, I'd love to hear your take on, take our, our listeners a little deeper on, is that in a lot of these states, the statewide polls don't really matter. I and mean, we've talked for a, a while now about how these national primary polls are like totally useless, right? Like, oh, Trump's at 35 percent nationally in the primary, but there is no national primary. And Chuck Todd made that point. Chuck Todd made that point. Uh, but 
actually, in some cases, too, like you have California, where we have statewide polling in California. But there aren't really statewide delegates or Pennsylvania, where, sure, you can win Pennsylvania, but then you've got all of these delegates who are, you know, not I don't I don't know how far they're legally committed to do whatever the the who, the winner of the quote unquote beauty contest uh, poll shows in that state. So, you know, tell us a little bit about where polling is helpful and where polling is falling short in telling us about what we can expect out of these upcoming states. Um. So I think it's helpful in a few areas. I mean, one is sort of, you know, you want to figure out what is the logical next battleground where you're going to even even try to make an impact or try and play if you're Cruz or Kasich. Um, it's helpful to the extent that we can, you know, maybe if you're a never Trump person like I am, that to, to try to figure out which of these two candidates is best positioned to actually win the state. Um, so it's helpful from that perspective. But when you get down to the district level, um, there's virtually nothing it can tell us. So right now, today's the primary in New York. You've had a few, a, a quite a bit of, uh, of New York primary polls come out um, where they'll have regional breakdowns um, like New York City, like upstate New York, uh, like the suburbs that are virtually meaningless in terms of in terms of telling us who is going to win delegates at a congressional district level, um, because you have some districts in New York City um, that cast 268 votes in the Republican primary as one district in the Bronx did. Um, and that awards just as many delegates as a district in Long Island um, that's going to see hundreds of thousands of votes and it's going to go overwhelmingly um, for Donald Trump. So a John Kasich or a Ted Cruz could easily cancel out all of those votes in Long Island or in Staten Island, where Trump is expected to do really well in inner city, the Bronx, in Brooklyn, in um, in Manhattan, in the upper upper east side and places like that where there aren't that many Republicans. Which and is so, why I guess we, you saw Kasich go to Arthur Avenue, which we talked about on our interview with Steve Shepard in the Bronx to have go to a real Italian deli in the Bronx because, you know, there's only order an abomination of a sandwich. Yeah, you can order a sandwich for every Republican voter, it sounds like. Yeah, and and that's interesting. That's not legal, Margie. You can only use the bribery on the delegates, not the actual voters. Um, But but you have had a few. So you've had Optimus did a a very large, a couple very large polls, 14,000 interviews, IVR poll. But nonetheless, it's the only way they could really get the sample size to really measure inside some of these districts um, where, frankly, I mean, that that would guide a campaign in terms of or it would guide a super PAC in terms of which districts are we going to focus on to you know, push Kasich or Cruz over the top to deny uh, Trump uh, delegates. Um, so it really is takes some non-traditional techniques to really get into some of these districts to understand. And I think the same the same thing is going to be true, frankly, in California um, on a much larger scale even. So but here's the question that I think is tough for the never Trumpers like yourself and for others who I respect and admire your goal, which is, you know, Trump is dangerous for the party, dangerous for the country. Um, What do you do in a situation where stopping the Trump train means doing some sort of delegate jujitsu, which there are voters out there. If you look at the public polling, the NBC Wall Street Journal poll and there have been others, I think Marist had had polling on this 
There are, you know, there are voters who say it is acceptable for the convention to just find another candidate who's not even running or to give it to somebody who does not have the most uh, delegates or the most votes. Um, but there are a lot of folks, even folks who are currently voting for Kasich and Cruz, who say the the person with the, you know, the most delegates going into it, even if it's not a majority, should win. And, and the Republican Party and the convention shouldn't take it away from that person. Um, even if maybe there's a long-term gain to not having Trump be the Republican standard bearer uh, this cycle. So what do you think of that? Uh, so I think when this question has has tended to get asked, it usually uh, gets asked in the context of there being a white knight or there being a candidate who hasn't run uh, in this cycle. Um, and it gets asked, in, you know, should uh, somebody like Paul Ryan get the nomination. And I think that um, or, or the question is vague enough to allow for that type of situation. And I think when most people think about what a contested convention or a non-Cruz candidate uh, would look like, they think about, oh, well, the convention is just the establishment and is just going to come in and just pick whoever they want. And I don't think that's that's what anyone is arguing. Paul Ryan has said that he is not um, you know, he is not under any circumstances going to run. Oh, my God. All that talk um, I don't think that ridiculous fantasy land nonsense. But Paul yeah, Ryan I mean, always makes so. me so mad when people would do that. I love Paul Ryan. He's not dumb enough to do this. He, he's beating Clinton in a head to head, according to the NBC Wall Street Journal poll. Oh, God. Well, well, uh, that he's aside, not going to be the nominee, guys. It's not going to happen. That aside, uh, I. <laughs> that there is something that strikes people as undemocratic that we've had 17 candidates and the, the nominee is not going to be the one, any one of those people. Um, I think it's very hard to tell once you get into that situation, but I think that the more realistic scenario is not one where somebody comes out of left field and the nomination is taken from any of the candidates. It's that um, it's probably Ted Cruz who um, will be able to put together a coalition of delegates who are bound to Kasich, who are unbound, who supported Rubio. And it's a very different uh, construct than obviously, I think, what we're used to dealing with. But there's a lot of, obviously, there's a lot of places in our, our, our politics where majority, it's a majority, not a plurality. Um, we've got runoff elections. We have the electoral college that works this way. And I think people, most people haven't just confronted these sorts of scenarios before because it's always been very clear um, who the majority winner was. But now it's not. And I feel like it's also this is a hard thing to pull on because it's very easy for somebody to say, well, if Trump has the most delegates and he gets to the convention and he doesn't win, that seems really unfair. But if instead it's Donald Trump has 1,200, Ted Cruz has 1050. I mean, I don't know if that's actually a, a possible scenario that may be overstating what what Cruz is is potentially able to get at this point. But I mean, like, like if you if you say that Trump has less than a majority, but Ted Cruz still has a lot, I feel like that's a much more legitimate argument to make. And that's really hard to poll on. Like if we called a bunch of people up on the phone today with this weird hypothetical of right. if Trump has this many delegates and Cruz has this many delegates and Marco Rubio holds on to his delegates and requires them to continue voting for him on the first ballot, like <laughs> like that's that's like a like an impossible polling question. Right. And it's still basically emphasizing the issue here, which is it looks like a complicated process rather than just the voters having their say. And we're not even getting to the part of, you know, 
which candidates done a better job of making sure their delegates get to the convention, which is a whole other. Oh, yeah, because now you have people who are and Patrick, I, I love your take on, on all of this. I mean, you've now got a situation where people are coming out and saying, let's if let's identify where these cruise delegates live and like blockade their homes <laughs> so that they can't get to the convention. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is the story with that? And to what extent do you think that could change public opinion back the other way? Like, I, I'm wondering if there's going to be a backlash if all of a sudden you have like Trumpkins who have set up barricades mm-hmm. around cruise supporter neighborhoods like you are not allowed to go to Cleveland. That strikes me as pretty uh. darn undemocratic. Yeah, and I think that there have been numerous. Exa- I mean, uh, I think there have been numerous examples. I, I think um, uh, of not just online chatter, but delegates, you know, having their Twitter feeds kind of saturated with messages um, from Trump supporters. Not all of them very nice, um, and threats being made. And you know, I certainly, I, you know, it's it's not. Um, Something I think we've quite ever seen before in 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 a primary, um, and I think that cer- something like that certainly would uh, change the tenor of public opinion pretty quickly. So uh, I know that besides podcasting, your uh, other area of expertise is um, looking at online sentiment, and online analysis. I saw something pretty funny today in the post. I don't know if you saw it or I'd love your take on on how people are using these kinds of stories now, but that people who are searching for Hillary Clinton in New York were also, they looked at food, were also searching for mm-hmm. shrimp scampi and quinoa and arugula. And people who were searching for Bernie Sanders were also searching for vegan Passover recipes and authentic <laughs> Mexican. And then for John Kasich, supporters in New York, were searching for filet mignon and, uh. and for uh, Trump. It was, um, I think it was like pork chops and I forget what mm-hmm. else. And then, um, I God, I can't, oh, I think for Cruz, it was just, it was salad. <laughs> just salad. Yeah. <laughs> what were, does it all mean? <laughs> I just, there was also like one thing that I didn't even know was like a thing. It like was barely a, an actual food. I don't know, like some kind of chocolate bar I hadn't heard of. Anyway, they, they were all so hilarious. Uh, what do you think of these new stories and the things we can do about it? Is this, are we using online sentiment for good or just for young? or what so um you know there's a lot i think online sentiment analysis has a long way to go um you know it's not something you know i see some of those scores and i'm like "Eh, i don't know because you can actually manually code when you actually go in and manually code some of this it's very very different um, but, um, that list you read is perfect. I mean, I think in terms of really kind of getting at what my personal image of a supporter, uh, would be, um, um, but another really kind of interesting, um, you know, I, I think we're seeing, I, I think an emergence of just a lot of different, um, types of platforms and a lot of different types of data sources, this election cycle, um, that are particularly helping us get at, um, you know, a little bit deeper than some of the polls or get down to a geographic area like a congressional district that's a little bit narrower than a traditional poll um, can get at. So you have everything from Google Trends, which has been in particularly like in some of the early states um, was quite accurate in terms of projecting 
um, it was quite accurate in terms of projecting the, down to the percentage point, um, what percent of the vote um, somebody would get in like South Carolina or New Hampshire. Um, then you have 538 has this great map of uh, Facebook likes, and they've taken Facebook likes um, down to the con- not just down to the congressional district, because I don't think that's a layer of geography that they have, but in some cases in big cities down to the zip code. So you can tell you, where is John Kasich performing better than Donald Trump? And even though John Kasich has one fortieth the likes that Donald Trump has, um, they've really kind of done a good job of, of um, normalizing it um, so that it is actually useful. And, and the patterns kind of do line up with where in the precinct level where people have gotten votes in, in some of the states that have voted so far. So I'm very excited about um, a lot of these data sources that are um, that are coming out this year. I think they're actually very helpful, particularly when we're trying to do some of the more the nuts and bolts of delegate math sometimes. Well, this is going to be a fun ride indeed. Patrick, where can people get uh, subscribed to your podcast so they can listen to your insights uh, over the next couple of months as we head uh, into so the, the summer? Sure. The podcast, which is, again, we're, uh, we are going to be running it only through the convention, um, but um, it's called Floor Fight, and I think you can, you can find it on iTunes. Our primary uh, distribution mechanism is SoundCloud, so you can also find us there. Excellent. And where can people find you on Twitter? Uh, I am Patrick Ruffini on Twitter. We need to get some more positive things in your mentions after your hashtag never Trump activities have <laughs> destroyed your Twitter mentions. Patrick, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. Never Trump's thank a you. positive for me, so that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, thanks, Patrick. I really appreciate it. Thanks again.